Hey, was. Hey, Coxie. I love this part of our <laughs> podcast, the first three seconds where I think, oh, what's she got for us? I've got a good one today. I have found that there is a step-by-step guide for how to climb the stairs. <laughs> it's a real tradey one today. <laughs> it does too. If you can't laugh at that, something's wrong. Welcome to the Tradies in Business podcast with your hosts, Warwick Bidwell and Nicole Cox. Divert your phone and grab a brew as Waz and Nick unpack tips, tales, secrets and stuff-ups from guests both inside and outside your trade, helping educate and inspire you to break the cycle of gut-busting and money stress and create a true trade business. All right, listeners, so um, the music just to cleanse your palate there, clean out your ears and hopefully uh, give your brain a rest. (laughs) from that uh that was actually pretty good coxie yeah i liked it it just i happened across i did find a couple of sea-based jokes and i thought i probably really can't pull this off um in reference to today's guest and i thought no oh, I, I just really yes yeah, okay. the gotcha. ocean gotcha. didn't really think i could carry it off so I, I let them slide and we went with the tradey one i'm thinking what's the letter c got to do with oh, crossing gosh. the dutch and having the flu. <laughs> so I've outed him straight away. Um, we'll welcome our guest so he can stop sitting here on the screen watching us do our thing like, what are these two? Is this a proper <laughs> podcast that I'm actually a guest on? James Casterson, welcome to the show, mate. Good to be here. Great to see you both. <laughs> I, I'd like to believe you, mate, but listeners, poor old James has the flu at the moment. So he's actually, he's he's pulling. You know what, James? I think this is really in keeping with your backstory, mate. This is like pushing through adversity, uh, you know, facing the challenge of having the man flu and still doing a podcast with Woz and Coxie. As you know, the man flu is as bad as it gets. Forget about these world first adventures. Man flu is where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> if, you can, if you can cross the Tasman Sea in a kayak, mate, um, you can push through the man flu, I reckon. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, listeners, we are talking with James Casterson. Um, your, now, your nickname is Cass, is that right? Yeah, Cass. used to be Buffhead when I had long hair, but now it's just Cass. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that's what we call my dog. <laughs> I have now about it myself. I now call my kids Buffhead. Uh, they've taken the they've taken over B one and B two. B one and B two. I call them. So oh, I love that. The next generation. Uh, that's Ooh, awesome, yeah. mate. Cass, um, tell us, well, tell our listeners, actually, because um, we generally do a little bit of research here uh, at Tradies and Business. We take our podcast moderately seriously. <laughs> uh, but, mate, tell our listeners a bit about yourself. If they don't know who Cass is and, and some of your exploits, um, tell us a bit about that. And also, I guess, you know, how that came to pass, because our listeners love to find out who you are and, and how you came to be here today. Yeah, Awesome. Yeah, look, I started life out as an accountant, um, just working in the city, and I wasn't particularly passionate or engaged in what I was doing. What I really did love was adventure. And uh, in my early 20s, the expedition started to get bigger. Um, myself and two mates from school paddled down Australia's longest river, the Murray. It, took, uh, it was 2,500 kilometres over 49 days, which, which was an absolutely amazing trip. Um, then a few years after that, paddled across Bass Strait um, in a double kayak. And uh, the expedition started to get bigger. So I started mountaineering, climbing around the world. And then one day I said to my best mate, Jonesy, can you imagine paddling a similar distance to the Murray? But instead of inland through Australia, you reckon it's possible to jump in a kayak and paddle 2,200 kilometres from Australia to New Zealand? 
how would you like to cross the ditch in a kayak with me? Um, he said I was an absolute idiot, didn't want anything to do with the idea. But after uh, four years of preparing and um, um, designing and building a kayak that was um, custom made, we pushed out off from Foster on the north coast of New South Wales. And cutting a long story short, after being out at sea for 62 days, where we had uh, 12, 13 metre seas out there, winds up to 100 kilometres an hour, sharks come up on the kayak one night. We did a two-week circle in the middle. We end up arriving in New Zealand, um, paddle, having had paddled 3,318 kilometres. And the arrival was incredible. We had over 30,000 people on this beach to greet us in. Networks from around the world, it was insane. And uh, then a few years after that, we backed that up with a second big expedition down in Antarctica, where we became the first team to ski unsupported from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole and back out again. A journey over 89 days, 2,200 kilometres, uh, over the trip, we lost 56 kilos of weight down there between the two of us. Um, yeah, we really had to dig deep to pull that one out. And so I've done all these big expeditions and um, coming back from these trips, I've been lucky enough to, to share as a keynote speaker around the world, all these different stories. But more importantly, these days is I, I take groups out on adventure programs to use, use the beauty of adventure to help develop people and develop teams. Okay, I'm feeling like the most insignificant <laughs> unachieved person in the world right now James thanks for that. that that's incredible I can't even um there are so many questions off the back of that it is crazy I can't even imagine the headspace that you would have to create to be able to carry yourself for how many days was it to do the cross 62 62 mm. days out at sea yep yeah. 62 days at sea without the I, in my head I'm presuming you can't really stand up properly you wouldn't be able to bathe. There's so much that you couldn't do that would feel so normal. How, how do you begin to prepare mentally for a challenge like that? Yeah, it's funny. One of our um, kayak coaches at the time said the best training we could probably do for you for this trip is to put both of you in a coffin when an East Coast low is coming through Sydney, throw, throw you out the heads out off Bondi there and um, open the lid after five days and if you're still smiling you're probably ready for the trip <laughs> but on a half serious note um, like the, it really was a mental journey and a mental battle over the over the course of that 62 days we averaged about 90 minutes of sleep a night uh, for for two months so severe sleep deprivation some of the best training we did was with the australian army who put us through food and sleep deprivation exercises so in a controlled environment we could see how our bodies responded to stress. And, you know, when we're at that point of hallucination collapse, what we actually see. And for some of us, um, it's quite uh, sensory. And so for Jonesy, he feels often um, like a, a hand coming over his shoulder, to pick up the paddle out of his hand or someone taking the hat off his head. Whereas for me, it's visual. And I often see this uh, sleep monster, which is this six foot five tall baby in diapers that drinks out of a milk bottle. And so when I, when I saw that on the Tasman sitting on top of, on, on the front of the kayak, I kind of knew and I could rationalize what was going on. Yes. What an incredible experience to be able to have that prior. How, how do you even hang on a minute? Let, let's really take this back a minute. How do you even get yourself into a position where you are able to be trained by the army in such a, in such a way, I would assume that that is something that's reserved only generally for those who are part of the services. So how yeah, does that really even good question? I, it's incredible with these expeditions. And when we were 90% committed to the trip, 
Um, we got no momentum happening on the expedition whatsoever. No sponsors, no team members, nothing really going on. When the world saw that we were 100% committed, mm. it was incredible. The people that came out of the woodwork, the pictures <laughs> came out of general society or or the army that to, you know, to come on to really want to be involved in a project like this. And I think when I look back on it now, that was the magic of these expeditions. It was this incredible team of people that were 100% committed and psyched for this mm -hmm. goal and were willing to, to do everything they could to get us ready and get us out there. Because at the end of the day, yeah, we were the two blokes out there, but um, there was a team spanning 17 different countries that helped get us ready for that expedition. And, uh, you know, when we were out there, they played a vital role in getting us across. That's it epitomizes the, um, <clears throat> the principle of having a common goal with a team where, like you say, you're the two idiots out there doing the thing, uh, but there's a whole bunch of other people around that that actually makes it a, po a possibility even. And within, you know, relating this back to our, our listeners, I guess, having businesses and business teams, it's, I guess it's easy <laughs> or it would, it would be easy to think that it's easy for you guys to pull together people that want to be involved in that because it's such a cool thing it's you know guinness world record thing uh but to hit a revenue goal in a business that's not very inspiring you know compared to crossing the antarctic mm -hmm. uh, so yeah look I, I totally get that um I, and i think that's the role of any good leader or good business owner is is for people to see that uh to see things differently and to see that bigger picture I once heard this story about, um, you know, you're walking down the road and you see these three brickies that are doing their job and you say the first one, mate, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm laying bricks. What does it look like I'm doing? Well, that guy had a job. When you ask the second bloke what he's doing, he said, um, I'm building a church. Well, that guy had a, a career. Or, and then mm. when you ask the third bloke what he's doing, he said, I'm building a house of God. Now, today's got nothing to do if you're religious or not, but when it comes time to hitting a deadline, hitting a target, Put, putting in when it needs to be put in, um, I'll let you know, I'll let you guess which one's going to really push through and deliver. And I think that was the same with something like this. You know, we couldn't pay rates, uh, decent rates. Often people were putting in hundreds of hours worth of their time for free. And so it was something else that they wanted to be a part of. Pretty cool. I don't think I've ever been part of a, a big project like that. Smaller scale, if I were to sort of relate it back to um things like probably some stuff a lot of our listeners do coaching and managing football teams etc it's not actually about you in those moments it's about helping those kids find the best results they can and, and fun and enjoyment on a week-to-week -week basis I guess being involved in a project like yours is really similar it's actually about being part of the buzz and the energy and helping I guess as a team to d deliver that result that you guys were looking for I, I can imagine that would be really quite energetic it'd be very um, enthusiastic and help pull you through which again probably relates directly back to teams and how to uh, work with the team to keep them inspired and motivated and wanting to work towards that common goal absolutely and connecting people to that high purpose as well yeah. yep mm. yep mm. incredible James, I want to ask about planning. You talked about <clears throat> certainly the um, the kayak uh, across the Tasman, four years of planning. And when I read that, sort of doing some uh, some reading on you, because I, I love uh, adventure autobiographies. So people like yourself um, and, you know, people who have done Everest and all sorts of weird stuff that just blows my, my mind, uh, the headspace that you would be in to risk life and limb in pursuit of that sort of experience and achievement, I love reading those stories. So did a bit of digging on you, mate. Um, 
And when I came across uh, that comment in your material that you, you planned for four years for a 62-day paddle, I thought, four years of planning? What the hell were you doing for four years in the planning? And I suppose um, I'd love to to get you to unpack that a little bit for our listeners as well of, you know, what sort of things go into planning for that two-month gig over a four-year period? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. Look, I often say that 99% of the success of these trips in the planning phase and 1% is in the execution. It's got nothing to do with kind of high energy um, kind of fully rad adventure. It's not like jumping out of a plane, planning an expedition <laughs> across the Tasman Sea. I often liken it more to watching turtle porn. It's pretty boring. Not much happens. It's slow. <laughs> it's like, it is like, it, it really is a lot of monotony and a lot of um, super detailed work. And if you don't get the detail right, you know, the return on investment is you don't come back alive. Um, and so part of that planning first up is that, there's no blueprint out there, you know, for a lot of um, your listeners and, you know, to, to do what they do. That's why they're part of this program. And, um, and that's why, um, you know, they've got other mates that are in the industry that can kind of show them, well, you know, if you do this, this, and this, this is the blueprint for success. Mm. Whereas to pull off a world first, there's no Googling it. There's no just asking someone, Oh, what are the steps I need to take? There's you've got to completely invent it off uh, from scratch. And, you know, for us, one of the things was we had no idea what the kayak was going to look like. Like, what? How do you how do you design and build a kayak that's going to hold two months worth of provisions, be able to handle seas up to fifteen meters high, um, and get you from one side of the um, Tasman to the other? And so it, there was a lot of uncertainty at first. Um, what we actually did was we initially we wrote down about four pages of questions and had no answers to any of these things. And then started systematically going through a process to come up with a strategy or a, an answer to every question that we had um, so that we could see the plan on paper. And then it was a matter of putting that plan into action. Having said that, in the planning phase, um, and I mean, definitely in the execution, I mean, that's the whole definition of adventure, things don't always go to plan. And, um, you know, you can, you can think you're doing all the right things. And for us, you know, we'd, we'd raised some decent funding. We had a great designer. We had a great boat builder. We built this beautiful kayak and the day we went to put our kayak in the water for the first time was the day our dreams were going to be realized. You know, we'd worked so hard on this thing. We'd committed every cent of savings that we had to it. And the day we put it on the water, the entire kayak just flopped over onto its side. It would not sit upright. We were absolutely devastated. We were meant to have a you know a launch with a few hundred people down at the Australian National Maritime Museum the week later, and then we were meant to be out in the Tasman two weeks after that. And it was one of those cases that um, yeah we it, we actually had to go through a, a redesign and a rebuild, delay the entire expedition twelve months, um, widen up the beam, retest, mm. iterate, and then get back out there. How do you deal with that rapid change in mindset, James? You know, you're ready, you're ready, push, 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 and then there's this immediate dramatic change. How do you how do you flip the way you're thinking on a dime like that? Look, it was, I'm not going to lie, it was incredibly difficult and we were absolutely gutted. There was no, too, there was not too much positive psychology going on at that point. <laughs> <laughs> how many beers did you drink? Mate? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There were, you know, we were pretty gutted. 
Um, and it was just a matter of a being completely honest and open with all our stakeholders, yeah. um, because we were, again, we were devastated that they were going to want to pull the pin and think that, mm. you know, it was all over and look, we've put in X amount of money. Uh, we wanted our return investment now, not in 12 months time, if you can do it. Mm. And so, um, being honest and open about it was one thing, mm-hmm. uh, and then really just trying to focus more on the solution rather than being I guess, stewing on the problem. I I came across this equation once, um, E plus R equals O. So events happen that you can't control. uh, Plus R, which is your response, dictates your outcome. So Mm -hmm. really just focusing on that response on, okay, how do we get this thing working? It was quite funny. We actually, uh, when we flopped on the side, we got into into our kind of mission control center. We got our boat builder boat designer, electrical engineer, and a couple of other people that were involved in the build process. Um, and within five minutes, we had a room of half a dozen adults just absolutely yelling their chops off at each other, trying <laughs> to shift the blame, trying to oh, no. trying to say, no, it's the electrical engineer's fault for putting those electrical books up too high. No, it's the built builder's <laughs> fault for putting too much resin in the mix. And he was trying to, you know, beef up here and here and didn't listen to the designer enough. And and then they both pointed the finger at the designer saying there was too much weight up high from the start. And so had all these people wanting to shift the blame. And that was just very much focusing still very much on the event side of things rather than yeah. focusing on, okay, guys, something's gone wrong here. Let's just focus on the response and what we need to do to fix this thing. Sounds like every building site I think I've ever been on. Yeah. <laughs> now there's a, we could easily move on from that. What was the solution, James? Like, so everyone's posting blame on each other pointing the finger um, and obviously you redesigned it and it was a, a success other than the wind um, catching the square uh, <laughs> um, design uh, that I read about as well. But how did you get past the whole blame stage? Probably the the hardest thing that we ever did. I mean, we were still two blokes in our mid-20s and these guys were well into their 40s and 50s, a lot of them, was um, tell them to shut up first up and then um, and then – fully accepting responsibility for the, for what's happened, for what had happened saying, this is our project. We're the managers of this team. We, we let you all down. We've obviously let a slip happen here. We've let a slip happen there. It's our fault. Okay. Now that the fault's been assigned now, now what do we have to do to um, fix it? So people weren't feeling threatened and they weren't feeling like it was their fault and that they had fingers being pointed at them. We'd taken that, we'd taken that and we'd cop that. And then it was about then getting them to then use because they were incredibly gifted, um, uh, yeah, tradesmen and uh, mm. and professionals um, getting them to focus on what we could do then do to fix it. Love that, mate. Perfect. Couldn't have scripted that answer any better. <laughs> All right, I want to ask about the sharks. Sorry, Warwick, we've jumped in. I've got to know about the sharks. I'm terrified of these damn things. What happened? How did you deal with it? How did you get out of it? <laughs> yeah, so uh, we... We were paddling along and our progress had really slowed down. This is about two thirds of the way across. Uh, we looked underneath the hull and we had about 80 or 90 barnacles the size of golf balls. Oh, wow. Completely measled on the underside of the hull. And they were slowing our speed down by about 50%. So they had to come off. Um, and neither of us wanted to do it. Um, imagine you're about 600K off the coast of New Zealand. <laughs> you've got 4K of ocean underneath you. You've got no idea what's in the water. And. <laughs> How do you how do you resolve a deadlock like that? Well, I'm, I'm sure it happens on every good trade site in Australia. Uh, the old scissor paper rock. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pleased to report for the first time I finally won a game. So Jonesy had to jump in the water. 
Um, I'm looking around for sharks. Um, he's scrubbing these things off naked as quickly as he could. Got back in the kayak. We paddle on for 30 minutes, trying to warm his body up. Not realizing what we just done was create this beautiful little burly trail up around yeah. the kayak. Of course. Yeah. And the stench of Jonesy's unwashed body and um, knocking those barnacles off has attracted some unwanted attention. Jonesy jumped back in the cabin, starts getting dinner ready. I'm packing up the two cockpits. Went out the corner. Oh, I thought I saw something come by. And then before I had time to yell out, shark! Old kayak lurched over to one side, came back up again. And for the next four hours, we had these two big blue sharks just rub themselves up and slap their tail fins against the hull. The, the small one was about three, three and a half metres long. The other one was about two thirds the length of the kayak, so closer to about five metres. Wow. Um, and so, for the, yeah, it, they, it was the most incredibly and bizarrely intimate night of my life. <laughs> and Jonesy was still naked through all this, is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> James, that can't have been the only encounter you had with uh, some pretty extreme wildlife, I'm sure. Lots of different wildlife, um, beautiful albatrosses out there. One morning we woke up where the sea was so glassy, you couldn't see the difference between where the sea finished and the sky began. And as I got into the cockpit, this big 30-foot whale came up right next to the kayak and kind of looked up at me, um, and its eye was the size of a dinner plate and oh, kind of just looked up at me and looked like deep into the soul of this big blue whale. Um, he, he looked at us, probably was wondering what the hell we're doing out there, and then <laughs> dived down underneath the kayak <laughs> and off he went. idiot, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you see much in, in the way of other um vessels i suppose and i presume there's lots of big boats or we I don't tried know. to stay away from the shipping lines um uh, we did so. on a um yeah we did see one boat uh, that we raised on the radio um we saw their uh, their sail on the horizon yep. and as they got about 50 meters away from us we're like we, we, we can smell something here as they got closer up, we, we saw that they were cooking bacon and eggs up on their oh deck. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and it was an unsupported journey, so we weren't allowed to take any of it. And they said, hey, boys, we saw you guys on the news. Um, geez, you're doing well. Um, you want a bacon egg roll? And we said, oh, look, it's an unsupported trip. We can't, we can't take any. Well, that's fucking stupid, isn't it? That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, okay, if we put it in a Ziploc bag and it's just floating along in the water, can you take it? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Uh, but yeah, they just couldn't get their head around that whole unsupported thing. That's that's uh, a fairly high level of integrity, Cass, uh, to, to knock back a bacon and an egg sarnie in the middle of the Tasman Sea. I've How long had you been paddling by that stage, work. mate? What's that? How long had you been paddling by that stage? Uh, it was a good few weeks, yeah. It was a good uh, yeah, four or five weeks. So you'd be sick of dehydrated dogs wallop by then. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was the thing you missed the most, James? Um, just the sights and the, um, smells of land, like even the smell of soil. Um, and I guess the, um, the richness of, um, I guess greenery and, mm. uh, uh, just everything is so bland out there and everything is constantly moving, even though out on the Tasman, um, you know, when you have a nice day out of the ocean, it's beautiful. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, paddling along the harbour in Sydney or your thousand K out to sea, it's beautiful out there. So you do get bits of respite, um, but yeah, it's those intense storms that are the ones that really get you. Mm, that must be terrifying. Yeah. I, I just can't imagine. Um, well, you occasionally see it on social media or something where there's some footage of the, 
the, the big ships or the trawlers, etc. I've seen a lot from overseas more so than here around Australia, where they're literally falling down and they're meeting the biggest wall of water I've ever seen in my life. And I just can't imagine, you know, I think you said a 12 or 15 meter wave. I cannot yeah. imagine the fear, and I really don't want to, uh, of looking up and seeing that, you know, crest above you. How do you even get out of that situation safely? Yeah, there's no getting out of it. It's just um, it's just riding it out. And uh, often in that, in that big weather, um, the kayak was more like a submarine. Mm. Um, so we'd be uh, strapped to the cabin floor with survival suits on. There was one storm that lasted four days, so um, almost 84 hours with no sleep. Um, and you just rode it and rode it and rode it. It was, um, yeah, absolutely debilitating. Did you do any kind of training around um, water survival if you were to be tipped out? you know, and, and the worst case happened, the um, kayak went adrift and you left there floating in the water. Was there some kind of work you did around survival for that particular outcome? Look, we did do lots of sea safety survival training. In that particular scenario that you've just mentioned there, um, uh, really there's not much that's going to save you. Yeah. Uh, in fact, six months before our departure, another kayaker was actually lost at sea attempting the crossing 80 kilometers short of New Zealand and never found his body. And that was the exact scenario that happened to him. Goodness gracious. That's, yeah. um, that's got to mess with your mindset before you oh, get out as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Over to uh, the snow because you couldn't get two more transverse yeah. into the, the <laughs> 62 spectrum. days in the middle of the, the oceanic desert wasn't enough. Yes. <laughs> it Incredible. took the 89 days. In the desert. Well, for me, Antarctica. Um, Antarctica was always like the Charlie Chocolate Factory of Adventure. Um, you know, I, as a kid, I wasn't interested in reading about Frodo Baggins or Harry Potter. <laughs> I love the stories down in Antarctica and I wanted to go and experience the place for myself. So coming back from the Tasman, we started doing a bit of research and we found that no one had ever successfully pulled off this world first that we were going to attempt. <laughs> I, the weight loss thing for me is a really big thing. That that's an awful lot of weight for you guys, Felice and I. Can um, I have a, a slight medical background, so I understand some of what that would actually do to your body, and being able to find the gumption to push through the physical discomfort and pain to get yourself home must have been really quite challenging. Was it fear that kept you going? Uh, I think there were multiple things motivating us. In fact. Um, well, just rewinding a bit. Uh, so it was 1100 kilometers to get to the South Pole and then 1100 kilometers back. We had horrendous weather on the outward journey um, and it took us a lot longer than we were anticipating to get to the South Pole. Um, on the outward journey, there was a lot of fear that was motivating us. Um, you know, we'd had to raise close to half a million dollars to make the whole expedition happen. We're raising funds and awareness for kids at the Sydney Children's Hospital. Um, our friends and families had sacrificed years of their life to help get us ready for the trip. So um, there was a lot of fear driving us to the pole. Um, like what if we fail? What if we let these people down? Um, they've put so much on the line. And that was really driving us to the pole. It was kind of like a, being pushed there. Mm. As soon as we got to the pole and we got our little happy snaps at the South Pole, a lot of that fear lifted and that pressure lifted. And then it became a lot more of a journey about how far can we go? How far can we push ourselves? What are we capable of as human beings? And when we tapped into that, it was amazing how much further we could actually push because at that point, we then only had 27 days to ski the same distance all the way back to the coast. So we had to then ski just over a marathon a day, over just over 42K a day wow. for 27 days in a row. Mileage that had never been done in Antarctica. 
we were um, absolutely rooted and we just had mm. to see what we could do. Bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I've run a marathon um, and a couple of halves and I was shagged for a week after I ran a marathon <laughs> and that was on flat ground around Brisbane. So, uh, you know, it was like 20 degrees. <laughs> so... How much gear were you guys dragging? Because you literally dragged um, gear sleds behind you, didn't you? Yeah. Yep. So we started out from the coast with about 160 kilos in each sled. Um, and that was all the food, all the fuel, all the provisions, all the medical gear, everything we need to survive um, on the journey. <laughs> Coxie thinks I'm mad. Like the, the biggest thing I've done is, is a eight-day um wilderness hike you know you get dropped off in a light aircraft and you hike out uh and there's no support or anything like that like that's eight days this is 82 days or 89 days sorry so uh and i only carry about 25 kilos of kit um <laughs> so if coxie thinks i'm crazy i can't imagine what she's thinking thinking about you cass <laughs> james is a lovely gentleman and i'm thoroughly enjoying the story <laughs> Some of us are built for adventure and some are not. And I guess some of us find that adventure in different ways, don't we? I, I Not all of us are driven to do such big, um, momentous things in our lives and doing some of the little things becomes quite adventurous for many of us mere mortals, may I say. Um, mm. There's no way I could entertain that, but I kind of feel like it's an adventure just to go out in the caravan. I'm, I'm not a big fan. Oh, of absolutely. Adventure is a relative term. Yeah, um, you know, exactly. it's, it means something different to every single one of us. These days I've got two young kids going, you know, full driving and camping with the kids. That's a great adventure. Um, mm. You know, seeing as long as people are getting out there and kind of exploring a little bit of what they're capable of, exploring what the world's all about, stepping out of their comfort zone a little bit as well, just not um, being comfortable all the time. Um, mm. That's adventure to me. It can mm. be anything. Mm. Totally. So, I wonder if life felt a little boring when you got home. Yeah. Uh, no, I wouldn't say it got boring. On some of the big expeditions in the past, I've come back with um, what I like to call post-expedition depression, um, yep. a bit of a lull because you've been so focused on something for so long. Mm. Um, after coming back from Antarctica, had to get ready for a wedding, uh, two week, my wedding um, two weeks after we got back. Oh, and wow. then um, um, later that year, our son was born um, and then we started renovating a home. And so, yeah, things have started happening really quickly. Far out. Man, you've got an amazing now wife that she was more than happy to support you heading out to do something like that two weeks with a return date two weeks before your wedding. That's incredible. Yeah, and uh, it was looking for a while that we weren't going to get back and we're going to be stuck down there for the winter and uh, oh. she would have been very grumpy uh, if we'd yeah. missed the wedding. Yeah. It's a heck of a way Absolutely. to do the wedge shred. <laughs> <laughs> Come back uh, looking a bit more shredded. <laughs> uh, so... Talking about comfort zones, Cass, um, I guess it's it's in some respects it's easy to take oneself outside our comfort zone by you know going and skiing across Antarctica and back, uh, and even you know me dragging my wife down to the southern tip of Tasmania to do eight days in the scrub, um, hiking back out. That took her a long, long way outside of her comfort zone, but. On a day-to-day -day basis, it's really easy to stay inside our comfort zones. And obviously, you know, our listeners are mostly business owners or tradies aspiring to be business owners. Um, but even outside of the realm of business, 
is there a way to tap into that uh, willingness to step outside of our comfort zones that you've come across, mate? Yeah, look, I think it's very much an attitude thing. So doing those peak experiences like the eight-day walk down in Tassie kind of gets you a bit more familiar with being out of it. But we, I mean, we, we all know deep down uh, being out of your comfort zone by definition sucks. Like it really is uncomfortable. We don't want to be there, whether it be professionally or whether it be in our personal lives. It's much easier to just constantly be in that area where we always feel familiar. But we also know um, that when we're in our comfort zone, we're not growing. Mm. We're, we're not getting bigger. We're not learning more. We're not, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not expanding our horizon at all. Um, and so, you know, for, for business owners, I mean, no one enjoys doing sales phone calls and no one really enjoys uh, following up on quotes when someone hasn't got back to you after two or three phone calls. People, you know, you don't enjoy that. And often you feel uncomfortable in doing that, but that is stepping out of your comfort zone. Mm. And I think uh, by living an adventurous life, it, it helps you, um, I guess, approach those kind of tasks with a little bit more um, uh, yeah, different perspective and that you're more willing to actually take those little tasks on that you wouldn't normally want to do. Well, I'm, just, I'm pleased that we've taken James Castrison outside of his comfort zone today by making him do a podcast while he's got the man flu. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought I'd add that to my repertoire. <laughs> James, I'm interested to understand how you transition the lessons that you've learned personally through these adventures into something that you're then able to um, teach or impart on others. Yeah, it was interesting. When I got back from the Tasman, I knew I didn't want to go back to life as an accountant. A um, bunch of companies asked um, get me to go and do some talks. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I'll ride this way for the next few months and then have to get a grown-ups job. And Every year since then, um, the, the speaking that I've done around the world has um, has become bigger and bigger. Um, I've, I've now spoken in 38 countries around the world to well over half a million people, which has been incredible. Um, and I, I think as I've kind of gone on that journey, because I did really come from that accounting background and that consulting background, I, I've, I've been able to see probably more and more recent years how many similarities there are between um, pulling off a world first and actually being successful in the business world in today's day and age. Uh, it's, it's, ex the rules of engagement are exactly the same. Uh, you know, it's the same building blocks. It's in the same ways. It's the same mindset. It's the same processes. It's just a different widget at the end of the end of the end of the day. Mm. All right. So you were stuck in a kayak for a couple months and then, um, did you guys share a tent? We did share a tent. Yep. Okay. So stuck in a tiny tent yep. with Jonesy um, for what amounted to another two and a half months, almost three months. Uh, how did you guys work together successfully? I mean, you're in close proximity for long periods of time, lots of stressful situations, um, no escape from the other person, had to complete the tasks. Uh, how did you guys do that? And, and what's your relationship like now? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, look, when you're in those high-stress environments, like a lot of the listeners of this podcast are on, on, on sites around the place, more often than not, when you're having a Barney with someone, it's more of the stress of the situation and stress of the environment rather than actually hating the person's guts. Yeah, every now and then we do hate someone and we really do hate them. But um, like in my case, um, uh, you know, I'm with my best mate that I've known since the age of 15, um, and when we're having a Barney, it's, it's, I mean, 
we totally loved each other and knew each other more than anyone else on the planet um, with all the stuff that we'd been through. Um, and so when we had a fight, it really was more of a reflection of what was going on around us rather than actually hating that person. And most of the fights were over the stupidest little things like one morning uh, we had a Barney about um, how Jonesy made my cup of tea. He put the powdered milk in with the tea bag, which just, uh, I just went off my chops about it. <laughs> so that was probably our biggest fight down in Antarctica. And again, it had nothing to do with the tea. It was more about the stress of what was going on. And so yeah. being able to recognize that and then, um, yeah, try and um, really realize as well that there is no way we we're going to pull off this world first as two individuals as well. We had to be one team. Mm. Um, and so, um, yeah, trying to be as considerate, as respectful of the other as possible was so important. If there's not a lesson there for our trading couples, I don't know where else to find one for you. Don't make tea for your partner. No, not <laughs> Drink coffee. Problem. Avoid the problem. Coffee, yeah. Make it your bloody self. Yeah, exactly. I, I um, Again, I don't want to leave that um, just yet, Cass. So obviously that requires one of you to say, okay, this is ridiculous. Was that something that you talked about beforehand? I mean, you guys obviously put a lot of planning into the actual logistics of these missions. What about that that relational side of things and the emotions and managing the the stress and everything that went along with it? Was there planning that went in behind that? Did you have agreements that you made? Like what was your approach to actually dealing with that? Yeah, I guess we came from a very similar um, set of values um, and that's that had been built over 15 years of adventuring together. And so we did have values that um, I guess were... Um, in a hierarchy that were important to us. And so the way decisions were being made, rule number one was always to come back alive. Number two, come back as mates. And then if we achieve one and two, then to achieve the world first that we're attempting. So a lot of our decisions kind of fell into that framework there. Um, and uh, I guess just having that inherent trust and that connection that we developed over a long time. I know a lot of expeditions come together as two professionals for, the object, you know, for, for an objective, Got your own sponsors, your own backgrounds. You come together to pull off a world first or whatever the expedition is, and, and then you go home. Um, I'm a big believer in, I guess, that superpower of connection. And I think when you really inherently trust someone and you've got that beautiful connection with somebody else or a team, you can achieve so much more than you can as um, two professionals. Mm. We talk about it a fair bit with our tradepreneur clients of um... – building relationship with their team yeah. uh, and not just having a bunch of staff who get paid a wage and then expecting them to do a particular job because, well, I pay you, um, but actually building relationship with their team. And, and that requires, I guess, a systematic approach to doing that. You know, there's specific strategies that you can put in place to build relationships with people that apart from the fact that they've, you know, applied to your job ad and agreed to come work for your company, you don't know them from a bar of soap. No, that's right. Yep. Uh, so I guess, you know, what you shared there, you sort of built that with Jonesy because of your proximity and your mateship and you've you've built that super strong relationship, which endures some of the arguments about tea bags and powdered milk. Yeah. And look, I think one of the probably the biggest elements to drive that connection um, with the team is, is that idea around vulnerability. Mm. And it's all well and good to say that you want to be connected as a team but if 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 it's your business and you're not willing to actually be vulnerable and open and actually let your pants down and uh, you know let, let people actually see into your soul then um i think uh, that connection is really difficult the fact that we had seen each other so vulnerable over so many big expeditions really played an important role in supercharging that connection why do you think that is Cass? 
Uh, I just think that vulnerability is a building block for connection. I really think, um, you know, as blokes, we're not the greatest at talking with one another and we're not the greatest of, um, I guess, sharing how we actually feel. And most of us have got a bit of a veneer up and we've got a, um, uh, an impression of what the world should see us as. And that's kind of what we try and live up to. Uh, but yeah, that vulnerability is so, so important in connection. I think it's challenging to allow yourself to be vulnerable. We talk about vulnerability a lot. Um, I agree with you 100%. It is the building block. In fact, I think it's almost the only building block without being vulnerable. It's impossible to create a tight connection with someone or really a connection at all. Um, do you have any tips around allowing yourself to be vulnerable? Is it something that you think that some people are just great at and others it has to become a practice almost for it to be something they can allow into their life? Look, I think it's a um, vulnerability a lot again a lot of blokes uh, can't just sit down over a chamomile tea and get vulnerable with each other it's just not going to happen that's not how blokes work Mm -hmm. Um, i think giving them an activity which gives them the opportunity to be vulnerable you know that's a business that i run is my adventure group taking groups out on adventure programs when you see someone that's shooting themselves on the side of a cliff um, Mm -hmm. in a high perceived low actual risk environment I'm not just doing it for shits and giggles. The whole purpose is to create that safe space of vulnerability. And so, you know, two people that don't particularly see eye to eye in the, in the workplace, when you're showing, when you're seeing someone that's showing real human authentic emotion on the side of a cliff, whether that may be um, fear, um, uh, anxiety, uh, when they get down the bottom, absolute jubilation, mm. that is, that's what connects people. Um, and so giving, and it doesn't have to be abseiling and rock climbing. It can be all sorts of things, but giving blokes the opportunity to connect through um, an activity where they do need to step out of the comfort zone. It's not just sitting at the pub and having a few beers on a Friday afternoon. Uh, you know, you're not really going to get that same level of vulnerability there. Finding those activities where it just gives you um, people to, just to step outside what is normal for them. Mm. A privilege to do what you do and be exposed to that kind of vulnerability on a regular basis. I think it's a, just fabulous. I, I would love that. And I think we're quite blessed here at Tradies and Business. We have quite a community that is open to being vulnerable with us. We've, we work quite hard to create a safe enough space that everybody is comfortable to be vulnerable in. I think it's really important to do so. Yeah. Um, but I just love that there are people like you that are creating that for more. Um, we can't I can't create that vulnerability through the podcast, but there are events like yours or opportunities like yours that mean that others are able to tap into that vulnerability and understand the power of transformation it has on their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yes, we've, gotten, yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Coxie and I are so vulnerable that we just talk over the top of each other uh, on a consistent basis. All and I'm going to let Nick go. James, I'm wondering if there's another adventure planned for you. If you've got something up your sleeve that you might be planning on the side. Look, I'd absolutely love to keep doing these big world first adventures. Um, as I mentioned before, I've got, um, uh, I'm married now with two incredible kids and they are by far the most important thing in my life. And the trips themselves are the easy part. Um, you know, I could more than easy get a leave pass, head down to Antarctica, cry a little bit, lose a bit of snot, um, come back a bit lighter. Uh, you know, that's the easy part. It's the four years beforehand where yeah. you're all in, you're a hundred percent dedicated to the trip. And when I'm saying all in, you don't have time to, I mean, you have to be selfish. Um, mm. The goal's got to come first. The objective's mm. got to come first. Uh, by the time you're training 30 to 40 hours a week, 
you're organizing half a million dollars worth of sponsorship, you're organizing logistics, you have, you know, with all that, you don't have time for a family. And I, I don't want to miss the next four years of my kids growing up. And so, um, yeah, these days I uh, travel to conferences around the world, but um, more importantly, I, I love taking um, people out into the outdoors to um, benefit from some of the lessons that we've talked about today. Mm, that's fantastic. Love it, mate. Um, I'm going to hit you with a question that uh, I definitely need to ask you today. So <clears throat> imagine you've got a thousand tradies in a room, Cass. Yeah. Uh, what's one piece of advice you would like to leave them with? Oh, geez, that's a great question. I think it probably can, uh, probably connects to what we just said right at the end there. Um, be vulnerable, um, connect. You're not alone. Um, you're, you're on this journey together. And not only can you achieve so much more together, then you can on your own. Um, it's a hell of a lot more fun as well. <laughs> yeah. Great advice, James. Yeah, I think about that jubilation that you talked about. Mm. Um, that's okay on your own. Uh, even for a hermit like me, it's great to share it with uh, other people and do a few uh, high fives and, and fist pumps. So, Exactly. Yep. Great advice, mate. Um, now, if our listeners want to go and uh, stalk you a bit and read some more about your stories or find out more about the work that you do with teams, uh, yep. what's the best place to do that? Yeah, jump onto my website, uh, myadventuregroup.com.au um, and same uh, handles on Facebook and Instagram as well. Plenty of content going up on Instagram at the moment. So yeah, jump on there. Beautiful. Cass, uh, thanks for your time today, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, probably not quite as exciting as uh, crossing the Antarctic <laughs> <laughs> ice. Former. Um Really impressed that you've pushed through the man flu. So I think you should uh, hit up the Guinness World Records and see if they can pop that one in there, mate. <laughs> the longest interview whilst suffering the man flu. There's got to be an entry in there for that. Love it. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Best of luck for the rest yes. of the year. Thank Thanks, you. buddy. You've been listening to the Tradies and Business Podcast with Warwick Bidwell and Nicole Cox. Find out more about today's guest, tools for your trade business and other cool stuff at tradiesandbusiness.com.au.